you know, it seems that these days we've really lost our focus on what the church of Jesus Christ actually is. We start to see the church as a place or a time on Sunday. Now, the original word for church in the Greek is ecclesia. And it is made up of actually two words. The first one is ek, meaning out of, and then uh, kaleo, which means to call. So the church, therefore, is a called out assembly or congregation. Um, ecclesia is commonly translated as the church. And uh, we see that throughout the New Testament. Uh, an example is, is Acts 11.26, where it says, Barnabas and Saul met with the church, the ecclesia, in Antioch. And then in 1 Corinthians 15.9, Paul says that he had persecuted the church, ecclesia, of God. And so the called out assembly, then, is the congregation of believers whom God called out of the world and into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9 um, is where we find that. The Greek ecclesia is the basis for our English word ecclesiastical, or things that pertain to the church, or ecclesiology, which is the doctrine concerning the church. But something significant happened in 313 A.D. when the Roman Empire Constantine legalized Christianity. Now, we might think, well, isn't that great? Well, there are a number of things that did happen. The uh, Christians, for the most part, for the most part, weren't persecuted like they were before. But when that happened, the visible church ceased to be the called out ones of Jesus Christ. It became a location. Eventually, a German word, uh, Kerscher, was substituted for ecclesia. Kerscher and ecclesia refer to two different ideas. Kerscher Church is a location, while ecclesia is a purposeful and often uh, powerful gathering of people united by identity and purpose. Now, it's been said that you can lock the doors of the kaesher, but not so with the ecclesia of Jesus Christ. Tragically, it didn't take long for this Germanic notion to so thoroughly unseat the Greek idea of the church that when someone talks about the church today, the immediate and nearly universal response is associated with a building, a structure, a location, an address. The word ecclesia is actually used over a hundred times in the New Testament and never once does it refer to a single family or a building or a place? It always refers to an assembly or a gathering of people. In addition, 95% of the references to the church in the New Testament 
are references to a local assembly. Only 5% of the time is the word used to describe the universal church. So clearly the emphasis about the church in the New Testament is for local body of believers. Bible scholar John Stott in the New Testament uh, commentator, he, he, uh, he mentions that there's, um, the New Testament knows nothing of an unchurched believer. The New Testament knows nothing of an unchurched believer. Neither does the New Testament know of anything of a churched unbeliever. There are many unbelievers who come to a building and participate in so-called church activities, but folks, they are not the church. There are no there are, there is no scaffolding in the church. There's only living stones. There are no prosthetic limbs in the church, only living organs, body parts. Here in Acts chapter 2, we see the new birth of the church. We see this new body of believers. We have all been knit together by the Holy Spirit. And what you immediately notice here is that they couldn't get enough of each other, being around each other, loving each other, and loving the Lord. Nothing was more important to them than the Lord and His church. In the first century, believers didn't somehow try to fit the church in with their schedule like we see nowadays. I mean, you didn't have the guy saying, well, you know what, I would go to church, but I have chariot racing practice on Monday night, and then, then on Tuesday I have javelin throwing practice. Well, you know, and then of course there's those masonry and, and ceramic classes for the wife and I at the local uh, community college on Thursday night. And maybe my wife would try to squeeze in a mud bath with the girls for a little better uh, complexion on Friday night. And if, if she does that, maybe I'll go out hunting with my, my buddies on Saturday and maybe take the fam to the lake house. And after all that, Sunday rolls around and, man, I, I, I'm too tired. Do we have to go to church? Do we really have to do that? Do you know what really happened? The true believers of Jesus Christ fit everything else around their devotion of the Lord and the church. That's what happened in the New Testament. Hebrews was written about 30 years after Acts chapter 2. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. Look at this warning. Look, look at what happens with the, the author of Hebrews as he looks out upon the church of the day. Hebrews 10, starting with verse 23. Here it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Remember that. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. You see, our tendency is to move away from faithfulness, not toward it. That's why we need to be reminded and encouraged from the pulpit and the pew. But you know what? We have the so-called stay-at-home church. It doesn't, they don't listen to what Scripture says. They find ways not to assemble together. As a matter of fact, we see this case with, within the last few years with COVID-19. This has shaken the foundations in a lot of areas, including the church. Millions and millions of people stopped attending church every Sunday because they had to, and many of them started to stream the services in their homes. Even now, after this is all passed over, churches still stream because they're trying to make it convenient. Even though most of the churches that shut down are open again. But there's so many professing believers that would rather sit at home. What was done once out of necessity is now being done out of habit because it's easier and it's more convenient. But no, make no mistake, your physical presence is needed when the church gathers for your sake and for our sake. I mean, the person in front of you, they need to hear you sing full voice. Right, Gare? They need to hear it. And that young man that's out in the parking lot questioning his faith may just tell you the truth if you ask how he's doing. That family behind you has suffered tremendous loss and they need to know that you're there to help them. That you're there both physically and spiritually. The truth is that you and I have work to do at the church that often makes our day jobs pale in comparison. The work of the church is critical and difficult, especially in the United States. In essence, America has lost its fear of God because the churches within America have lost their fear of God. And I believe the only hope for survival of our beloved nation and its churches is a passionate reinstatement of the fear of God upon the people of God in the churches of God in America. The urgency of this doctrine is highlighted when the end of Solomon's life comes. And remember, Solomon, who declared, whom God declared to be the wisest man that ever lived, culminated all his vast understanding in one 
profound statement. It's found in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Go ahead, if you please turn there. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Sometimes it is so good to actually see it, read it, so that you can understand it. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, starting with verse 13. Listen how he starts this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. I believe that everyone would admit that there's a character crisis in the church today. Why? Well, Paul says basically the same thing in Romans 3.18. Paul explains the depraved nature of man by stating, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The church, which is by definition all those who are called out of the world to worship God through Christ, is now bending over so far backward to please the evil world system that our message has actually gone from theocentric, in other words, from God-centered, to anthropocentric, centered on man. And as we do this, this is exactly opposite of the actual teaching of God's Word in the Bible. So with that, let's go ahead and turn to our text found in Acts chapter 2. And we're going to look at two verses today, 40 and 41. Verse 40, Acts chapter 2. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. In his landmark work on exegetical theology, Bible scholar Walter Kaiser, who is one of the most prestigious Old Testament scholars, pointed amazingly the, um, to analyze the anemic state of the church due to the inadequate feeding of the flock. He said, and I quote, The church and the scripture stand or fall together. Either the church will be nourished and strengthened by the bold proclamation of her biblical text, or her health will be severely impaired. 
the famine of the word continues in massive proportions in most places in North America. It is no secret that Christ's church is not at all in good health in many places of the world. She has been languishing because she has been fed, as the current line has it, junk food. All kinds of artificial preservatives and all sorts of unnatural substitutes have been served up to her. Kaiser continues by saying, as a result, theological and biblical malnutrition has afflicted the very generation that has taken such giant steps to make sure its physical health is not damaged by using foods or products that are non-carcinogenic or, or harmful to their physical bodies. Uh, simultaneously, a worldwide spiritual famine results from the absence of any genuine publication of the Word of God continues to run wild and almost unabated in most quarters of the church, end quote. You know, Steve Lawson says, a dearth of biblical preaching has left the evangelical movement weak, starving for spiritual truth. John MacArthur agrees, saying, the evidence for this famine is overwhelming. Numerous churches, he continues, including some of the largest and best-known ones, have relegated the pulpit ministry to second-class status, where preaching is still featured, um, is rarely biblical, end quote. You see, as the pulpit goes, so does the church. So the feeble state of the church can be traced to a famine of the Word of God from contemporary pulpits because it's their new way of doing church. Lawson notes, exposition is being replaced by entertainment, preaching by performances, doctrine with drama, theology with theatrics. The irony is that the preaching of the cross, which the Apostle Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25 is supposed to be foolishness to the world. If you'd please turn there to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 18 through 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Don't lose that. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. This is God's word, folks. But to those of uh, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has God, not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached 
to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, the gospel is foolishness. It's foolishness to the, the contemporary church. And so pastors have turned to other means to communicate. And then the, the result of this is a worldwide famine. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. And it is the greatest and most urgent need in the church. It is the greatest uh, need of the, of the world also. End quote. My friends, the only way that the church is going to be restored is if pastors repent and return to an unwavering commitment to feed the people the Word of God through persistent biblical teaching and preaching. This was the priority of the early church, and we'll see that next Sunday, uh, Lord willing, in Acts 2.42, where the apostles' doctrine is purposefully listed in that passage. Jesus launched his public ministry with preaching. Moved with compassion, Jesus taught the multitude. After his resurrection, he continued to teach and preach. Jesus commanded that the, his disciples would continue teaching and that his followers would be primarily identified not as fellowshippers, but disciples and learners. And so again, if you look at verse 40 of our text, I think you get the gist of Peter's exhortation. There it says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. We can tell from that verse that Luke recorded only an inspired synopsis of the sermon. It, 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 it lasted way longer than it takes us to read through verses 14 through 36. And so we know with many other words. We can only imagine how much dialogue went on between the individuals in the crowd and the twelve, but we know that it included many other words. And they were constantly bearing witness about Jesus, saying what they knew to be true about Him. And so we see that Peter was testifying and exhorting that word testify is uh, uh, the, the Greek word diamaturamai. Uh, and it means to earnestly charge, to give testimony, to cause it to be believed. Remember what it said in verse 37? Look down at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Folks, I hope that we all have a what shall we do moment before the Lord. Just like Peter, the pastor's job is to testify of our great Savior and getting you to somehow believe the great truth which is all about Him. And how perhaps you have not honored Him as you maybe thought you did. Because maybe you grew up in a liberal church where you at least heard about Him, but you never really investigated. More than likely you heard about the, the virgin birth and all the angels and the heralds, and you heard that He raised from the dead, but it didn't seem to matter much. You went on doing your own thing as if He was not Lord. And though you knew He was called Savior, you went on as if you needed no Savior. But then one day, as someone testified to you of our blessed Savior, you realized it was true. It may have been a gradual illumination, or it might have happened all at once. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that you came to an understanding how terribly, dreadfully wrong you were for ignoring Him. And you said, what shall I do? Even those of you who grew up in a faithful Christian home and have known Him and served Him as far back as you can remember. I hope you also understand that you must be converted and have a what-shall-I-do moment. When you have seen how privileged you are to know Him, to understand, to be taught, I hope that as you walk with Him, you truly sense your need of forgiveness and grace. I hope that you realized, even as you walk in the light, that the blood of Jesus continually cleanses you from all sin. I hope that you are filled with gratitude for forgiveness uh, and for His Holy Spirit. And I pray that, it, that you are glad and that you love Him without measure. It might be that you grew up outside the church altogether. You never really did hear anything about Him. And I hope that in your case, you come when you learn about Him and you hear how He died on the cross to atone for people's sin. And that you begin somehow to understand that you were ignoring Him as your Creator. And you avoided knowing Him and giving thanks to Him. And that you had false beliefs about Him because of the wickedness of your heart. How foolishly you believe silly lies. All these things that you were told, maybe it was in science class in high school, you ended up believing all those things that you were told that denied a Creator. 
And I pray that one moment you too come to the realization that you've been wrong all along. Folks, it's an awful thing when that happens. And I don't mean bad. I mean awe-filled thing. When you realize that you have wronged the, the Lord of glory, when you realize that you can't go back and do it all over, how many of you, after you came to salvation, go, why, Lord? Why so long? Why was I so old and went through so many things? Because you needed that. And so, in verse 45, we see we're pointed to the fact that we need that exhortation. Peter's, Peter, it says that he testified and exhorted them. That word in the Greek is parakaleo. And it means to comfort and encourage through instruction and teaching. When we think, oh, we can't go back. We sinned so bad. I remember some of the things I did. We need that. And you get that through instruction and teaching. And the verb form is quite clear. There's a lot of exhorting that kept on taking place. They were just calling people and calling people and calling people to submit to Christ. Peter kept on at them with many words. He kept urging them on because he knew how important it was. He kept urging them because he knew it would be hard for these people. They would have to break away from all of their attachments. And you know what? It might put stress on your family. It might put stress on your friendships. A lot of people might think that you're part of a cult. But see, their, their definition of a cult is anything that goes against the world instead of anything that goes against our Lord and Creator. And that's where the Jews had all come up to this feast of Pentecost to worship with their people. And now Peter is calling them to receive Christ. Most of their people and their leaders absolutely rejected. They should have received him, but they rejected him. And so Peter says, be saved from this perverse generation. That word perverse in the Greek is uh, skolios. It means bent, crooked, perverse. It's where we get our English word scoliosis. Scoliosis is a sideways curve to the spine. Everyone's spine has a, a, a curve to it. But when looked from behind, the, the spine uh, normally would go straight. But in children and teens, scoliosis puts an S curve or a C curve to the spine so it's not straight like it should be. And so Peter is saying this generation that I'm talking about, 
doesn't lead straight to God, doesn't lead to Christ. These people, mostly Jews in in Acts chapter 2, needed to cut themselves off from Christ rejecting Israel. As H.A. Ironside says, the wrath of God was hanging over this generation and the Jews needed to be Uh, needed to believe on Christ and break away from this group. They had the same issue. It's hard, folks, to sit there and say, I'm going to follow Christ, knowing it's going to put this, this rift between me and my friends, me and my family. I know that. But biblical teaching will help all of that false teaching and false practice drop off. We need sound biblical teaching and preaching of the Word of God because that must occupy the leading place of influence within the church. It always has and it needs to continue. Jonathan Edwards declared the primary importance of a pastor is to be an expository preacher. But tragically, most of what passes off as preaching today falls short of the standard set by the early church and Christ himself. The church is going to fulfill the, or if the church is going to fulfill the great commission of Jesus Christ, if people are going to be brought to saving faith in Christ and substitute Uh, subsequent growth in Christ, they need the pure milk and strong meat of the Word of God. Pastors must preach the message of Scripture focused on Christ, full of doctrinal instruction, full of theology. But where is that in the pulpits today? The early church intensely hungered for them as the fruit of their genuine conversion panting after the Word of God. That's the response of most people who are truly born again, just as a a baby desires its mother's milk. They can't get enough of it. And yet, professing Christians today, they stagger in like drunk men from the coast, looking for a word of the Lord. And it has nothing to do, it doesn't come from the Bible. They look every other place. But thankfully, we can state with assurance that the word of the the Lord is being preached. There are still faithful churches. There are still those hearts that hunger and thirst for the preaching. Thank God. That's what we saw when we went to G3. We ended up going, huh, It seems like we're alone in this little podunk town. But we're not alone. There are many, many people who are being fed the Word. And praise God for that. But I want to make one more point on this. If you notice that there's a rather picturesque command in verse 40, and it's to be saved. Be saved from this perverse generation. Now, Peter didn't make this up on the spot. 
That's an echo from the line of the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. It's one of the passages that would have been quoted on a rotating basis in the synagogue, and they would have been really familiar with this. Deuteronomy 32 verse 5 says, They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a purse a perverse and crooked generation. The word they is referring to the generation that just died. You see, Deuteronomy is just before the next generation entered the promised land. And so Peter and the other apostles were calling people to uh, do nothing less than repudiate what the apostate leaders had taught them and to come to Jesus Christ. Christ, that Jesus from Nazareth. They didn't mince words. They only gave two options, in or out, yes or no, saved or lost, Jesus or anything else. 1 John 3.10 says, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. They didn't mince words, folks. They didn't water down anything. They didn't try to make the, the message palatable and culturally relevant. They didn't soft-pedal this message you know, the message that we hear nowadays. And we, we are often, I've, I'm told all the time, your ministry is not going to be profitable if you don't change the message. If we don't tell the people what they want to hear. But we need to remember the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. If you please turn to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Chapter 3, starting with verse 5. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. When He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You know, I was reading a testimony of a man who grew, grew up in England in the middle of the 18th century. This man had a very, very godly mom, but she was sick. His dad, he was an unbelieving sailor. And sailors in those days lived notoriously vile lives. His mother passed away when the young man was 11 years old. And so he joined his dad on the ship 
and in doing so became one of the most corrupt and vile men that you could ever imagine. He was so corrupt and vile that one of the captains he served with put him on an isolated island off the coast of Africa just to get rid of him. He didn't care if he lived or died. He lived there for a long time as a slave to the natives on that island. But in God's providence, one day, an English ship happened to stop at the island and rescued him from the situation. And then through a series of, of events and a vicious and terrible storm where he thought he was, would perish, he remembered his mother's godly teaching. And he came to broke, brokenness over his sin. He was a captain of a slave ship. And he realized the deep, wicked evil of enslaving these other men. And he was broken deeply over the depths of his wickedness. He had overseen the deaths of many but then God radically saved him. He came to an awareness of his own sin, and he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And although he didn't have any education, so he taught himself, he later became an English pastor. And in pastoring, he started to work with a legislator in the Senate, in the Parliament. And this man that he worked with was William Wilberforce. And over the course of 20 years or so, they finally got slavery outlawed in Great Britain. The name of this man was John Newton, the same one who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. The depths of God's mercy. If God will save John Newton, he'll save you and me and everyone who comes on his terms and entrusts themselves to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so in verse 30, 41, we read of the marvelous effect of this preaching, this effect that it had on these people. There we read, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. That word gladly is the Greek word osmenos, and it means with great joy. And the word received is the, the Greek word uh, apodekamai, and it means to accept what is offered from without. And so think about this. These Jews... They were greatly, with great joy, ready to receive what they had heard. Not only the word, but also in their actions. 
Because you see, there's a connection between repentance and baptism. And that wouldn't have been lost on Peter's Jewish audience. For he was calling them to, to a public response that set them squarely against their previous con- convictions and sensibilities, not to mention the Hebrew brethren and their own national identity as Israelites. A Jew's covenant status and confidence of righteousness before God were attested in the fact that only the proselytes to Judaism were baptized. Jews needed no cleansing or initiation because they were already clean. They were already members of God's covenant household and possessors and servants of his covenant law. It was the Gentiles that needed the help. If you please turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 11. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. See, the Jews... We're just saying, I don't need to go on, I don't need to undergo baptism because I'm not one of them. I'm not a Gentile. But here, these, these people were going, I'm just like them. I know what is required. I know that this messianic kingdom of heaven means that my Jewishness is no longer identifying with uh, me with the sons of the kingdom. That identity and status are bound up in their own righteousness, not in God's righteousness through Christ. Every son of the kingdom of heaven is a son of God. And that's why repentance and new birth is attested in baptism. And that's necessary for the Jew as well as the Gentile. In R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, which I obviously recommend to you all, he writes, If God is the creator of the entire universe, then it must follow that he is the Lord of the the whole universe. There is no part of the world that is outside of his lordship. That means there must be no part of my life that is outside of his lordship. His holy character has something to say about economics, politics, athletics, romance, everything that we can be involved with, end quote. That's what the the Jews now realized 
folks, we got a problem. These Jews ended up realizing that it was the Word of God, the preaching of Christ, and the call to repent and believe and be baptized was something that they needed to do. But you know what? A.W. Tozer, he put his finger right on the problem back in the 1950s. In his comments about the so-called new pragmatic methods of preaching the gospel, these were starting to become very popular back in his day. This weak-willed compromise of biblical righteousness within church growth, growth movement. It's not new at all. This is what Tozer says as if he has the eyes of a prophet, which he's not. Tozer could see Willow Creek, Saddleback, Lakewood. He could see all of these. He could see them coming. And in his unique style, he said, and I quote, the old cross killed men, the new cross entertains them. The old cross condemned, the new cross amuses. The old cross destroys confidence in the flesh, the new cross encourages it. The old cross brought tears and blood. The new cross brings laughter. The flesh, the smiling and confidence, preaches and sings about the old cross. Before that cross, it bows and points toward the, uh, and toward that cross, it points with careful, staggered hysteronics. But upon that cross, it will not die. And the reproach of the cross, it stubbornly refuses to bear. I know well how many smooth arguments can be marshaled in support of the new cross. Does not the new cross win converts and make many followers and so carry the advantage of numerical, uh, numerical success? Should we not adjust ourselves to changing times? Have you not heard the new slogan, New Days, New Ways? And who but someone very, very old, very conservative, would insist upon death as the appointment to the way of life? And who today is interested in a gloomy mysticism that would sentence its flesh to a cross and recommend self-effacing humility as virtue actually to be practiced even by modern Christians. These are the arguments, along with many more flippant still, which are brought forward to give an appearance of wisdom to the hollow and meaningless cross of popular Christianity, end quote. C.S. Lewis saw, there's not a gimmick in the world that can save a soul. 
people gather every week on a regular basis they enter the church but they don't enter the kingdom of heaven it's the realm of those people who are are citizens and partakers in restoration Apart from the washing of renewal by the Spirit, a man cannot even rightly perceive the kingdom of heaven, let alone enter it. So again, we come to the same dilemma. What shall I do? The answer? You must be born from above. Life in the fulfilled kingdom is a life of new creation. And Luke demonstrates this by his summary about this fledgling church. And you notice in verse 41, Luke notes that 3,000 individuals responded to Peter's exhortation and were baptized and added to them. It's also significant that Luke explains the outcome of this uh, receipt of Christ's gospel in terms of these individuals being added the verb there in the greek is the is the greek word prosthesomy and it means something or someone to be joined to an entity that already exists and so in context luke's meaning is that around 3000 were added to the group of this of these disciples that already received the Spirit. And so they were joined to this new covenant body. Though Luke didn't directly state it, his language implies what Peter had just promised, namely that these believers also received the Holy Spirit. And he's careful to show that this new community was being formed, not upon the basis of shared ethnicity, religious uh, um, uh, solidarity, or doctrinal conformity, but possession of the Holy Spirit. The community that emerged on Pentecost is preeminently spiritual. Because the sharing in the Spirit consists in mutual indwelling. Those who are members of this community are partakers in the Spirit's work of renewal and transformation. The believing community is a household of the new creation born of the Spirit joined together as mutual sharers in a new humanity all constituted by the last Adam. The corporate entity that would become known as the Church of Jesus Christ wasn't just simply another community of religious adherents. It is the first fruits of the triune God's work of creational restoration. And so Luke described the church in languages 
a language to convey its supernatural and otherworldly nature of operation. I don't know if you, in your Bible, if it's like mine, you have two words there that are in italics to them. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't have to them in your Bible. There's no, what it's in italics because there's no words in the Greek that actually tell what it's trying to convey. It's what is called dative. And it means it's indicating an indirect object or recipient. And the point is that there's a translation behind it, even though there's no word for word static equivalent in the Greek. But that as it may, they are added to someone or something. And so we have to finish the sentence. Added to who? They were added to the number that's meeting in the upper room. 120. Which means they were adding to those 11 who were part of the 120. And so now you have 3,000 being added to them. But the answer... Why is it important that a believer in Christ be joined to the local church? Why is it important for them to be added? Part of that answer to that question is that you as a believer will have a very incomplete obedience to what God has clearly commanded you to do if you do not join a Bible-believing church. And this incomplete obedience will jeopardize not only reward on the day when Christ returns, but it also means sorrow and disappointment that will come to you as you try to live out your Christian life, try to hold on to your independent living, all apart from the will of God for you. There are some people who believe that they can be a true Christian and never go to church, never join a church. But you see, the Bible never gives you permission for that. It speaks of their unwillingness to do what God would have them do. That they would become authorities unto themselves. But it's not the Bible that is governing their decision. It's their wanting independence from authority. And within that mind, that in your mind, it causes me to wonder if the person who leaves off go, coming to church will not join a church, is it because they don't think it's necessary for salvation? And yes, you can be saved apart from the church. If you were somewhere where you could not be part of a church, you, it's not that you're not saved. But when you have the ability to be part of a church... Christ calls you to do that. Just remember on the final day when Christ returns, he will say to some, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He commands you to be part of a Bible-believing church. And when you say, I, I have the ability, but I'm not willing to, you are lawless. Where else does a person 
learn to keep God's law unless they come to a church and hear it preached. How, how can you remember the Lord's Day and keep it holy if you have no thought of the church that meets on the Lord's Day to worship Him? Just look at verse 47 there. Just jump down there. It says that those praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. You know, I'm not saying this so that it just fills up the seats in Providence Bible Church. If you don't have an eagerness to come into the body, if you don't find joy and comfort and conviction on hearing the Word of God, stay home. Do what you want. But think about what it says in Hebrews 13. If you turn there, please. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 9. Hebrews chapter 13, starting with verse 7. It tells us why we should join a church. It starts off with, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow. Consider the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with food, that will have no profit for those who have been occupied with them. You see, no pastor or leader can rule over you unless the person comes and gives consent in their joining to the church. If you fall into sin and you attend a church, but you have not been given formal permission to the elders of that church to rule over you, how will you be able to have church discipline to bring you back? The whole idea of church discipline is not to put you out, it's to restore you. But when you, there is no authority if you end up saying, I'm not going to do it. If you join a church, they have rule over you, and it's for your good and for your spiritual well-being. It's so that you hold fast to the confession that you have in Christ. It proves the sincerity of your faith in Christ and willing to be held accountable to His Word if you go astray. God's plan is good. And it proved by, is proved by everyone who gives them up to Christ that they will first be baptized, then be members of the church. The Apostle Paul says the believers in the church at Macedonia in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 7. Go ahead and please turn there. I know it's this turning takes up a lot of time, but I think it's important that we see this. Second Corinthians chapter 8, starting with verse 1. Moreover, brethren, 
we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they freely, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we have had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urge, we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you bound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that it abounds in this grace also. Let me ask you, have you given yourself to the Lord in that way? And if you have, you will end up looking to the, the church, a true Bible-believing church, Because Christ has saved you, not to live for yourself, but for God. And God's plan, as expressed in believers, is that He would place you in a church, a local church. Because that's the best place to be saved. God's plan is to have a local church for every believer. It's important to you and important to God that you join a church and continue steadfast with it. Doesn't mean that it's going to be perfect because it's not going to be. But I want you to see this. There's a close connection with that and being baptized the two went hand in hand. Those who believed were baptized and then they were added. So I'm hoping this morning that you will see that when you are saved from your sins and delivered from, the, from following after perversity in all of, its formed, all of its forms, that you are actually saved to something. You are saved from your sins and you are brought into the body of Christ, which is the church. That not only means the fellowship and the brethren of universal church of all believers all the times, but it's also the, the church here on earth, the one that is one body. Philippians 12, 2 uh, Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only in, in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with 
fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. And so we read in Acts 2.41 that those gladly received Peter's words were baptized and that day 3,000 were added to the church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to be selfless, to be pure-minded, to be sacrificial. As the Apostle Paul said, not looking at our own things, but on the things of others, even as Christ did, who did not hold on to what he had, being equal with God, but emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, was obedient to death, even death on the cross. He's the model of sacrifice and loving fellowship. May it be our experience that we can enjoy the richness of that and the testimony that bears in this world around us. We ask you, Lord, that you would protect this fellowship, that you would protect us from all of what wants to come in from the world, all of what wants to make us perverse like them. Humble us but keep us from it. Lord, we're overwhelmed by what you have accomplished. But your desire is that Christ must, might be manifest in the world through his church. And so we pray to that end. In Jesus' most glorious and precious name, amen.